Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. The Civil War was fought almost entirely by vast armies of volunteer citizen soldiers who dwarfed the tiny U.S. regular army. The minor role that the regular army played during the war has obscured its political significance before the war, when Republican politicians saw it as a tool of the Southern slave power. And then after the war, when those same Republicans' anti-military views had unintended effects on the course of Reconstruction and westward expansion. Professor Cecily Zander describes these effects and more in The Army Under Fire, The Politics of Anti-Militarism in the Civil War Era. We'll talk with her tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to Prokopovich G at ECU.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z G at ECU.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but not representing the university or any of its subject parts, nor will my guest represent anyone but herself tonight. Well, it's the last day, February 29th. No, February 28th should be the last day of February in 2024. I was all set to talk to you uh, briefly about pirate baseball what an interesting season great series last week against unc Uh, but just an hour maybe hour and a half ago uh, a message came across the announce list here at ecu from the chancellor saying that an ecu faculty member was shot today while walking near campus apparently a completely random attack by a guy on a bicycle Uh, And in fact, there's a video online showing this guy after the shooting riding his bike down the street slowly. The police accost him and there's an exchange of gunfire and he gets apprehended. Um, Nobody was killed, thank goodness. But uh, how how does a person, random person riding a bike shooting randomly at strangers, how how does a person with that mental state get a gun in the first place is, is confusing to me. So I Googled, can mentally ill people own guns in North Carolina? And the first website I came across was from a law firm that says if you lost your Second Amendment rights because of being judgmentally ill, they can help you get your guns back. So it's good to know there are people out there working hard to arm crazy people, like the one who was shooting at uh, one of my colleagues today on, on Fifth Street uh, about half a block from uh, Walcoats Elementary School, where my daughter went when she was little. Um, 
I'm sure invited this kind of thing. It's just too close to home. Um, but let's move on. It's almost spring break here. Uh, a few more days. It is baseball season. It's softball season two. Pirate softball is 16 and two. They are having a great year. Um, but no, I cannot maintain the upbeat mood. Let's go back to the downbeat mood. Uh, in Civil War-related grim news, the magazine you've all read at some point in your uh, Civil War interest life, uh, Civil War Times Illustrated, that started publishing during the centennial, uh, is apparently uh, about to fold or has, has done so. I have to say, I, I was never a huge fan of Civil War Times Illustrated. It wasn't my favorite of the magazines. I, I really liked North and South in its first incarnation, notwithstanding uh, the management uh, policies at times. Uh, the material was great, and I really uh, enjoyed that. And now I'm a big fan of Civil War Monitor. If you're not a subscriber to Civil War Monitor, you should be. Uh, uh, but it, it, times are changing. Old media is fading. Uh, a friend of mine works worked his whole career at the Chicago Tribune, one of America's great newspapers, back to Lincoln's day. And now it's a shell of its former self being owned and torn apart by a vulture capital firm. Uh, they're not the villains, just what's happening to, to media today. And uh, paper magazines like Civil War Times Illustrated are not able to make a go of it any longer. Hopefully there's room for at least one in the market and, and uh, uh, Civil War Monitor really is uh, is worth your support. Uh, I urge you to support that. Uh, another thing you can support is Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. Uh, everyone ought to go to that as well as subscribing to Civil War Monitor. This year, I will not be going uh, for the first time in many years, it looks like. As I heard today, I've been asked to, invited to lead a tour to Normandy for the 80th anniversary of D-Day. Uh, World War II is outside my wheelhouse, but a trip to Normandy, can't, can't turn that down. Um, nor should you turn down the opportunity to visit impedimentsofwar.org, the best website. Uh, Mark Gaffney runs it. He did yeoman's work this week, figuring out what Voice America did with all our files last week. Um, he and Aaron at Voice America collaborated to figure out what had gone on. If you read the uh, Facebook page for, for uh, Impediments of War, you saw that for a brief moment, we couldn't get uh, any of the shows up from the past season, but they're all back. Everything's been fixed. Uh, marvelous work by, by Mark and by Aaron. Thank you both for making that happen uh, so you can eat. the fact that you're hearing this show indicates that whatever they did uh, must have worked well you won't hear this show next week March 6th we'll take a break for spring break I will be writing all the things I'd promised uh, manuscript reviews and uh, short articles and things that I said I would do weeks or days or months ago uh, try to get caught up on those do some grading uh, and relax a little bit and we'll come back on the 13th of March. Victor Vignola will be talking with us about the Battle of Fair Oaks in 1862 with his new book, Contrasts in Command. On the 20th, John Reeves returns to the show with a book about U.S. Grant. He is our theme general this season. We've had uh, two other books about Grant. And we'll finish up the month of March with Scott McKenzie 
And his book called The Fifth Border State, it is about West Virginia, and it's a very different interpretation of the origins of West Virginia than you have read before. Uh, So we'll talk with him about that. While you're there, mash on the PayPal button, as people say in North Carolina, I believe. Uh, Click on the PayPal button and donate to Civil War Talk Radio. Your contributions are not tax deductible, but I deduct them in my heart. Uh, I thank you for them, and uh, they're most welcome. Uh, also welcome is our guest tonight, Professor Cecily Zander. Uh, Cecily, are you there? I am here. Thanks so much. Uh, welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I don't know if you and I have met in person, although I, I've seen you at Civil War Institute bustling yeah. about and getting a lot done there. Yes, I, I think that's um, that's the main thing I, I can do for Dr. Carmichael. But um, yeah, I think certainly we've at least crossed paths there. <laughs> so it, it's good to have you on the show. I had had meant to uh, last June. I. You were on the list of people going to, and uh, heard it was not out yet, but it would be soon. And apparently, tomorrow, February 29th, is the official um, the, the launch date for for this book. Is that right? I think it was the 14th, but um, but oh, okay. but the the shipping has been slow. So either way, it's either just out or soon to be. Well, well, either way, congratulations. Uh, this is your first book? It is, yeah. Thank you so much. Wow, that, that is very exciting. Was this a dissertation originally? P- parts of it were. I would say um, it's probably 50-50 about what was in the dissertation and what, what is, is new to the book. Uh, that, well, that that's... I, I wanted to congratulate you on the length of the book, which is, I would say, reasonable. The number of graduate students who write a dissertation that just goes on for 200, 300, 400 pages trying to impress uh, the, the committee. I, I think that fad has, has, has peaked and gone away. It, it, it comes and goes over my career. I've seen it get high and low and uh, always happy to see something of reasonable length that you make your point present your evidence and move on yeah i think that was certainly um i think you're right um most of my um, friends and colleagues in graduate school wrote shorter dissertations i can thank my advisor for that bill blair whose background was in journalism before he became a historian mm-hmm. and uh his approach was always you know pick the best piece of evidence instead of presenting 17 mediocre ones and i tried to do that but i, I can't quite reach his skill in doing that but i'm grateful to have gone to work with him and, and kind of learned that skill and i'm glad that the book reflects, at least to some extent, um, his advice on moderation. <laughs> well, it, it does that, and you you have a, a wonderful mentor there. And, and you know, you mentioned Peter Carmichael. You, you've worked with a lot of really uh, high-level people in the field. Let's uh, let's talk about this topic: the politics of anti-militarism in the Civil War era. You know, when when people think of the war, think of armies, Army of the Potomac, Army of Northern Virginia, uh, the idea of anti-militarism, people being against the army seems unpatriotic and and unfamiliar. But you're very specific. This is about the regular army. Um, For for any listener who has not 
uh, paid attention to to military structure. Let's get our terms straight. Talk about the, what what do you mean by the regular army? Yeah, sure. That's a great question, and and one of the key points of the book. Um, so the regular army is the professional army of the United States. These are people who make the military their profession. So they um, enlist. The officer class of that army is generally West Point trained, West Point graduated, um, and these many of these West Point graduates will go on to lead Civil War armies. Um, they are both regular army officers and volunteer officers. Um, the the rank and file of the regular army in the 19th century, typically about 50% recent immigrants, folks who kind of get off the boat in one of the major port cities and run into an army recruiting officer who's been strategically placed to offer them five years of employment and a paycheck and a nice uniform if they'll um, sign up. And so they do, and it's a way for them to learn English, maybe to get out west, um, anything like that. And then the rest are people who just really like soldiering. Um, the volunteer army of the Civil War, of course, and especially on the Union side, um, which is what I am more focused on, uh, is is a, is a group of men who sign up for a limited term. And of course, they can re-up. And we know this moment in 1864 when Grant and Sherman and the like are really worried that they're going to have a lot of these three-year veterans, as we call them, falling out of the ranks. And they're going to have to replace them with new, fresh recruits. But this is the contract the federal government government makes when it asks men to volunteer for service. It says we are going to uh, limit that to three years at most. Of course, we know the Confederacy does not do this. Once you get a gray uniform on, you're in for life um, in the Confederate Army um, or, or until the end of the war. Um, but in the Union Army, you have that option to get out. Um, and and Americans really value this idea because it's, it's the idea of George Washington, who took up his sword when the country asked him to help fight the American Revolution, and then laid down that sword to serve in a civic role um, as president of the United States. Uh, the United States as a, as a nation really um, fears the idea of large standing armies because large standing armies threaten democratic republics. They did in ancient Rome and they did in Great Britain and they did under Napoleon. And this example is omnipresent in people's minds. So the U.S. by design constitutionally keeps the standing army quite small in the 19th century and it keeps them far away from Washington out on the western frontier. Um, the Civil War, uh, it's going to be, uh, see if I can do my math right, 97.3% volunteers and 2.7% regular soldiers over the course of the entire civil war on the union side. So the United States has this anti-military tradition, the, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, the redcoats shooting at civilians in the Boston massacre is, is what Americans think of when they think of the regular army right. in interacting with civilians. We don't want that in our country. Mm -hmm. we, want, we want to be defended by we want to defend ourselves as civilians. Correct. Uh, uh, so how is it then that um, the, the, the army – well, the, the country does have to have an army uh, for the western frontier, for the conflict in Mexico. Uh, you suggest that in the 1850s, the army not only is, has the traditional – uh, unpopularity of being associated with the, the standing army, with, with government tyranny, uh, but also becomes associated or affiliated or, or, or linked in the public mind, at least in the North, to the expansion of slavery. Um, that is a big question, and you, you write about that uh, extensively. So I'm going to propose uh, – we've got a minute and a half to the next break – 
let's take that break early right now. Think about that question, and we'll come back with that uh, in just a minute. Sounds great. We are, we are talking tonight with Cecily N. Zander. She is the author of The Army Under Fire, The Politics of Antimilitarism in the Civil War Era. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P. O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Cecily N. Zander, author of The Army Under Fire, The Politics of Anti-Militarism in the Civil War Era. So we're talking about the the unpopularity of the Army with some people before the Civil War. Quick question, how large is the Army we're talking about, say, in 1850? So they're about, they, they sort of waver in the 1850s. So there's a decline after the, the Mexican War between 14 and 16,000 men. So on paper, 16 regiments. Okay, so it's, it's given the population today is 10 times bigger. It'd be like an army of 160,000 today. Mm-hmm. Not, not minuscule, but uh, not not huge. And of course, the country is not 10 times more territory today. Sure. Um, so, it, it, how is it? it? Soldiers are just supposed to follow orders and stay apolitical. How did they get associated or accused of being pro-slavery? It's a great question, um, and and all of the soldiers would tell you that they're just following orders, um, and they they uh. insist on this. Um, <clears throat> it is in the minds of politicians that they become um, associated or, or portrayed as an instrument of slavery, and uh, a lot of it has to do with the kind of rise of the Republican Party um, in the wake of the collapse of the second party system and the crisis over Kansas and Nebraska and popular sovereignty, whether or not slavery is going to move west. 
the Republican Party comes into being, and we know their their core idea is the non-extension of slavery into the territories. Uh, they view the army as an institution that is being deployed by what they identify as the slave power conspiracy. So slaveholders, prominent positions in the federal government who are using federal power um, to protect and expand slavery in disproportion to the representation they should actually have uh, because they benefit from things like the three-fifths compromise. Um, and Republicans point to things like the U.S.-Mexico War, of course, but um, also incidents in Kansas where um, Franklin Pierce and his Secretary of War, Jefferson Davis, ordered the Army to go in under the command of Edwin Vose Sumner and break up the free state meeting of Kansans who want to establish a free labor government in Kansas. Uh, Republicans point to this kind of activity as the Army being instrumentalized, uh, that's an, sort of an academic jargon word, or being used <laughs> on behalf of... Uh, slave expansion, and it becomes folded in with their anti-slavery rhetoric. Um, and it's because the army has been overseen and administered uh, by slaveholders. Um, as we know, slaveholders dominated the federal government, and we know they dominated the Supreme Court um, and the presidency, uh, or at least their kind of doe-face avatars uh, did so. Um, but they also dominated things like the chairmanship of the military affairs committee in, in the House and the Senate, as well as the Secretary of War position. And, and Jefferson Davis, of course, um, is the most prominent example of this in the Pierce administration. And uh, people are going to accuse Davis after the fact uh, of basically creating new army regiments so that he could test out whether he had any good generals because he was fomenting the idea of secession even back in the 1850s. Um, that's a little bit of a stretch and a little bit silly, but he certainly mm -hmm. was using the army to probe the possibility of slave expansion some historians have looked at this, um, folks like Kevin Waite and Matthew Karp, um, and, and Karp in particular looked at the Navy, and Kevin Waite in particular looked at the railroad and how Davis had the southern route surveyed um, and promoted that, a route that would run through Texas and New Mexico and Arizona to California. Um, I'm adding that kind of military piece. And so I think historians have found mounting evidence that there really is a concerted effort on slaveholders to use instruments of federal power um, to make sure that slavery can expand into the West. So the uh, the dispersal of the the Kansas legislature, the Free State Legislature mm -hmm. in Topeka, at 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 bayonet point, the army marches mm -hmm. in and says you can't meet here. The president says you can't meet here. I mean that really is exactly what the the founders feared. Uh, Oliver Cromwell like marching into the parliament and dispersing the representatives at gunpoint. Um, you also give the example of the Anthony Burns incident mm -hmm. that it hadn't occurred to me before that that really would be seen as a uh, as the army being used for for this kind of uh, uh, this kind of abuse for, for listeners for whom Anthony Burns doesn't ring a bell uh, give us a quick uh, uh, 
thumbnail sketch of that, if you would. Sure. And then and the Cromwell, I'll just say briefly, the Cromwell yes. point is mm-hmm. apt for Sumner. Um, in fact, a reporter uh, apparently pulled him aside as he rode out of the Free State Legislature building and said he had robbed Cromwell of his laurels. And Sumner was sort of baffled because he only thought he was following orders. Um, and he was kind of quite taken aback by that. But um, mm-hmm. the Anthony Burns case is a couple years earlier. Anthony Burns is a, 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 an enslaved man who runs away um, from his plantation in Virginia. He makes it to Boston. He falls into the care of some abolitionists who are trying to keep him, um, you know, in a free state to help him kind of move on to freedom um, because of the fugitive slave law. Um, when his master demands Burns's return to Virginia, which is his right under this newly reinforced fugitive slave law, which is part of the um, uh, omnibus package of bills that make up the Compromise of 1850, um, people in the North, whether or not they believe in slavery, have to comply. And when they refuse to do so, um, the army is sent in to basically apprehend Burns and make sure he goes to the trial that is held for him in Boston, which ultimately determines to return him to slavery. Rich Richard Henry Dana, um, who wrote two years before the mast and was an abolitionist, defends Burns at the trial. Um, Burns does go back into slavery. He is returned uh, and then eventually sold further south, though, to North Carolina, uh, where he is able to work for his freedom um, and eventually um, briefly attends classes at Oberlin College, which is at that time kind of abolitionist college, and and then makes his way to Canada. And and he kind of falls out of the historical record there. Um, But it's a very kind of a galvanizing case for the abolitionists in pointing to um, how far the federal government is willing to go to uphold the demands of a single slaveholder. Um, And you have a a huge range of abolitionists who comment on this, and it even makes it into uh, Charles Sumner's crime against Kansas speech, which is probably the most famous um, expression of Republican um, anti-slavery ideology, Um, at least before maybe William Henry Seward uh, gives his kind of uh, speeches later in the decade. But um, it's it's part and parcel of this argument that the Republicans are crafting about um, the uh, the the Democratic Party, in particular, the slaveholding wing of the Democratic Party, and their, and how far they are willing to push to make sure that slavery is upheld, not only in the South but in the North as well. Now, when the war breaks out, you have several hundred of the officers of the the Federal Army leave, uh, join the Confederacy. And the argument is made both ways that this shows that West Point is indeed a nest of treason, uh, that these people who were trained and and educated at public expense have now turned their back on the country that that nurtured them. Uh, But you also have the the argument that a lot of Southern-born West Pointers stayed. Mm -hmm. Uh, How should we look at that? Yeah, it's a really great question. I think um, Wayne Show wrote a wonderful book about um, these kind of West Point officers and the, and the decisions they make over the secession winter. So there's about a thousand um, officers or so uh, in the army at various ranks um, at the time of the outbreak of the war. 313 uh, leave for the Confederacy. Um, 
And uh, this is less than the number or the percentage of actually Southern born officers. So 27% of the officers were Southern born or sorry, only 27% uh, leave. Uh, but the, uh, but they, it was, it was closer to kind of 50, 50. I apologize. Um, in terms of the breakdown, many choose not to fight at all, but you have other mm-hmm. kind of famous examples like George Thomas, uh, mm-hmm. Virginian, who is very much expected to go with the Confederacy who stays loyal. Winfield Scott, another example. Um, and so I think what Wayne Shook concludes is that the the military academy had a quite nationalizing influence. Um, and you have to look at each individual officer's decisions at that point. And I think, you know, anyone familiar with Gary Gallagher's sort of book, Becoming Confederates, who, in, and, you know, each kind of individual is going through a different process of um, judging their um, loyalty and how their their various competing loyalties stack up. And, and so someone like Robert E. Lee decides that at the end of the day, he is more loyal to his society and the society that raised him and that he grew up in in Virginia than he is to the federal government. And so those loyalties, even though he possesses all of them simultaneously, they kind of play out in different ways. Um, but it, it doesn't reflect well when it comes to um, how the army is going to be judged and how those officers are going to be judged by politicians um, that so many did leave. And so no matter sort of the percentages or the numbers, when the Republican Party, which becomes the majority party at the outbreak of the mm-hmm. Civil War, kind of sits back and surveys the professional officers they have available to them to run this war, they are deeply distrustful of even those who stay loyal. And no less than William Tecumseh Sherman's brother, John Sherman, uh, mm-hmm. writes to uh, Tecumseh and basically says, I don't trust anybody who went to West Point. And Sherman's like, well, great. Like, thank you. Yeah, um, I I'll do my best. Right. So, well, the loyalty of West Pointers, I mean, it's an issue, uh, the loyalty of professional officers, I would say, going back to Benedict Arnold, mm-hmm. James Wilkinson, uh, you know, in the period before your book, uh, there's, a, again, a tradition of uh, these these military officers committing treason. So it's not, it's not shocking that, that that people would be suspicious of sure. West Pointers. But it raises the question, what, what is the alternative? Was there um, – did anyone seriously propose that the regular army be expanded to hundreds of thousands on the one hand instead of using volunteers or the other direction that the army be abolished altogether and use only volunteers? No, it just seems like they're very content to leave them completely separate and not integrate Mm -hmm. them at all, Mm. except for those officers who kind of they need because they don't Mm -hmm. have um, you can't expect someone to, um, you know, show up to a muster in his county in Ohio and suddenly know how to lead an entire field army and drill. Um, (laughs) This is the kind of theoretical thing that only a West Point officer can do. So they have to make the concession that you're going to need at least the West Point expertise to organize these armies, um, but they're going to be very watchful of 
um, these these West Point officers when it actually comes to the battlefield. Um, and they're going to be sort of justified or, or Republicans, especially in the in the government, um, are going to feel um, very justified in their suspicions when George McClellan ref- repeatedly refuses um, to wage a harsh war against the Confederacy. Um, uh, the kind of arch conservative Democrat McClellan, who, um, if he's not treasonous, he's so conservative as to make him practically useless. Um, and so that's another kind of uh, kind of um, sort of line that these these Republican politicians draw is that even if they're not outright treasonous, uh, they're too conservative to, to do what needs to be done to win the war because they're too sympathetic to the South or too sympathetic to slaveholding. So they're not willing to fight an aggressive war mm-hmm. to uh, uh, to to do what needs to be done. Things that Sherman will do later in the war, for right. example. Um, so you write about Congress stepping in through the Confiscation Acts, through the uh, Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War. Uh, they almost seem to want to take over from the West Point officers, and or, or at least or find some officers who will who will do their will fight the kind of war that they want to see fought. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they um, they they really want a medal. Um, and the Joint Committee is a great example of this. There's there's one really great book on the Joint Committee by a historian named Bruce Tapp, but there's still mm-hmm. a very understudied uh, group, which is is um, sort of interesting. There's reams of, of printed testimony, so it would be a very easy kind of project for for someone to undertake to, to kind of look at them uh, in a new light. But they they haul these generals up uh, and ask them questions, and they sort of anoint. A few generals who they really think uh, they can trust. It's just that uh, their anointing is based more in the political sympathies of those generals than in their military abilities. So the best example we have of this is John Pope, who is the mm-hmm. kind of um, star of the Republican ideal of an officer. Pope says all the right things, and he's brought east in the summer of 1862, um, and then quickly sent even further west than anyone else uh, <laughs> because yes. of how poorly he does. Um, uh, when he is brought east, but he gets up before the joint committee and is is content all day to talk about how slow McClellan is, how conservative he is, how you need to take the war to the Confederates. He he issues his famous headquarters in the saddle. We've ne- we've always seen the backs of our enemies' orders, um, and everybody you can imagine is rolling their eyes. Um, saying, let's see what you can do. And of course, the answer is he couldn't do anything, not against Robert E. Lee uh, and and an army of Northern Virginia that is kind of reaching um, uh, its its sort of first great high um, as a as an organization. So um, but, it, but that's that's kind of what's going on there. Let me ask a historiographical question. Mm-hmm. Uh, preface this when I, I recall being 10 years old, being a big fan of the Detroit Tigers and then learning that one the Tigers was 1968 mentioned who they were going to vote for for president, and it wasn't who my parents were voting for. And mixing politics and sports, I wish it had never happened. I wish that the Civil War generals were the same way. Growing up, they were just generals, not political. They didn't have Whig or Republican or Democratic identities. But that has changed. John Mitsui's book on the First Republican Army, Tave's mm-hmm. book on the Army Potomac Commanders, uh, John White on the 1864 election, Zach Fry, mm-hmm. uh, Republic in the Ranks. There have been a spate of books recently 
showing how expressly political people don't drop their political identities mm-hmm. just because they're in the army. Um, and it seems you're you're taking that and and expanding it chronologically to look both before and after the war as well. Mm-hmm. But it, it it seems like you're you're right in the middle of something happening here. Yeah, I think what's going on, and I think um, you know Zach Fry's book is is brilliant on this, and so is Jonathan's. The um, the the professional West Point officers are going to stress neutrality for as long mm-hmm. as humanly possible, but the fact of the matter is they are commanding armies made up of citizen soldiers who consider themselves citizens first and are not going to pretend they're not political because they're mm-hmm. coming from the body politic, um, yeah. and so to be effective commanders and officers, uh, those West Point generals can no longer hide behind neutrality, and they have to find ways to allow the the citizenry who is fighting a political war to save the union to be able to express those political ideas and after the war I think is the more interesting question you will see a number of those regular army officers when they return to their traditional regular army roles retreat Mm -hmm. back into neutrality William Tecumseh Sherman our prime example I will Mm -hmm. not uh, run if nominated and I will not serve if elected Uh, but uh, Ulysses Grant becomes president Philip Sheridan is more than happy to play politics uh, when he needs to do so. And so um, I think the Civil War really changes the degree to which West Point officers are willing to be seen as expressly political. And then some engage in it after the war and others, as I said, um, kind of are content to, to leave that behind them. Now, after the war, we get to really the supreme irony of, of this book in which you show how the Republican anti-army sentiment from before the war as they fought the, the, the pro-slavery army that they saw, um, they continue to be anti-army, but now the army is their main tool to enforce Reconstruction, and they are taking away the tool out of their own hands. Uh, we're going to take another short break. We'll come back and ask about that uh, dilemma and other things that are covered in the book called The Army Under Fire, The Politics of Anti-Militarism in the Civil War Era. It's written by Cecily M. N. Zander, who was our guest tonight. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com 
You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Cecily N. Zander, author of The Army Under Fire, The Politics of Anti-Militarism in the Civil War Era. So, Cecily, two weeks ago on the show, uh, Fergus Bordewick was here to talk about his book on how U.S. Grant, President Grant, used the U.S. Army in South Carolina to smash the Ku Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Army is the federal government's only way to enforce the law in the South because white Southerners are not going to enforce Reconstruction upon themselves. Yet you show that the same people passing the Reconstruction laws are also busy taking the army down in size so it can't accomplish that mission. What's going on? Um, yeah, it's it's um, one of the kind of great ironies of uh, the Republicans, and you know they basically don't um, possess the ability. These are again. This is kind of a new founding generation. They're they're among the more far-sighted sort of governors or politicians of the the 19th century, and their mm-hmm. their imagining of these new amendments and and the idea that you need to basically fundamentally re re um, reconstruct Southern society, if not remake it um, all over. Uh, but they still have this deep wariness of of the army. Um, and they have a deep suspicion that if you um, put too many soldiers all together and make them feel like they are the most important tool the government has for accomplishing something, uh, you might promote uh, a sort of a new Newberg conspiracy if we want to think back to the immediate mm-hmm. post-revolutionary moment, uh, for example. And so so they do have, again, historical examples to dissuade them. What we also need to understand is the Republicans are are caught in a a kind of a mire of their own making. The Civil War, of course, expands the federal government to proportions that were unthinkable uh, at Mm -hmm. the beginning of the 19th century. And the federal budget um, exceeds a billion dollars for the first time by the end of the Civil War. And Republicans are very, very concerned with drawing that budget down. And of course, during the war, military spending makes up a huge percentage of that budget because you have to not only pay for the war, but you have to pay the troops. And so they want to reduce the army and reduce federal budgets. And for a political party that already has a a deep intellectual and political suspicion of regular soldiers, um, they're they're not always going to be paying good attention to the fact that cutting uh, budgets is also cutting their best tool for achieving uh, reconstruction. Though, again, up through 1872, uh, which is the period in which Grant is finally getting some movement on the Klan Acts and succeeding um, on putting down the clan, um, the, the army is still uh, a sizable enough presence to make that possible. But um, I think 1872 is really the year I identify uh, where you start to have a decline um, in the number of troops in the South as the drawdown really starts to take effect. And we know that when Grant tries again um, to to put down some more paramilitary groups in 1873-74, he has mm-hmm. less success. Um, and that's because there are fewer soldiers uh, with which he can do that. 
So what numbers are we talking about? It, after, at the beginning of the war, you said roughly 16,000. Um, does that number grow during the war? And, and what happens in the 1860s and 70s? Um, very good question. So it uh, it increases to 25,000 uh, in, in the war years. So in 1863, mm-hmm. the regular army reaches its wartime peak, which is 25 regiments. And they're kept completely segregated uh, from the volunteers. So they fight as regular army regiments, just as the, the you know, the 84th mm-hmm. Pennsylvania fights as a regiment. Um, and then after the war... Congress does realize that they have a really big job to do. Um, So the Army in 1866, a a really important piece of legislation, an Army bill, which is headed up by Henry Wilson, who may be one of the most important politicians from the 19th century that that nobody's ever heard of, um, helps to craft. Um, Mm -hmm. They set it at 50,000. But by the 1870s, it's down to 25 again. Um, and uh, if George Custer hadn't blundered into um, the massacre at the Little Bighorn, uh, mm-hmm. it would have gone down even further. But that forestalls the kind of uh, execution of the army down to even 20,000 uh, by the mid-1870s. So um, we also have to keep in mind that that um, all of a sudden uh, – the Great Plains have become a point of focus for the Army in a way that they never had before. So not only do you have to deploy a huge percentage of the Army to the American South, you mm-hmm. have a kind of French-Mexican adventure, of course, going on. So you need Army on the Rio Grande border. And then all of a sudden, because gold has been discovered in Montana, and there's suddenly conflict between settlers and these these Great Plains Native American indigenous nations, you need soldiers there too. So the Army actually ends up sort of in terms of men per miles spread more thinly, even though on paper they have more men. Um, mm-hmm. They also have a lot more to do uh, with with those soldiers. So we talk about the West. The, the Army is spread out. Did any volunteer regiments – I mean you've, you've got over a million soldiers at the end of the Civil War in 1865. And you show in your book with your, your vignette on the, the Grand Review at the end of the war, they all march – down Pennsylvania Avenue and basically get on a train and go home mm-hmm. and the, the army disintegrates, the volunteer army does, but some of them still had time to serve out of their three-year enlistment. Did Were they used in the West? They were. They were sent West by and large mainly because it, it was a little too risky to deploy them to reconstruction service because um, they were seen as less controllable, less reliable. Um, mm-hmm. At least you could punish a regular army officer if he stepped out of line in reconstruction. Mm-hmm. It was a little more questionable about what you could do to a volunteer so they are sent west many of them go to texas uh phil sheridan of course doesn't get to participate in the grand review because he's been ordered to head to texas because that seems to be where the next flare-up is going to be a lot of those volunteer units go out to texas with him and with george custer who they do not like at all uh Mm -hmm. they try to frag custer um at his headquarters in austin uh blow him up placing a bomb under his cot um you know and maybe Mm -hmm. they were on to something who's to say but but they Mm -hmm don't like it, um, even though they do have time left to serve um, on their enlistments because they want to go home. As far as they're concerned, the war is over. Uh, The Union has been preserved. Their job as citizen soldiers is not to now go and either make sure Reconstruction is carried out or to go out to the West and fortify 
U.S. ambitions on the Great Plains. Uh, the other units that, that do get sent West volunteer units are, are a lot of those African-American or the USCT regiments uh, mm-hmm. who also have time left to serve. Um, and they are also in that 1866 legislation made a permanent part of the Army. You, we mm-hmm. add, um, actually for the first time, of course, still segregated, but, but regiments of, of black troops and one regiment of Native American scouts is permanently attached to the Army in that bill. So you have the composition of the Army changing ever so slightly. So we, we're, we've talked about the regular Army and the volunteers. The, the third form of uh, military manpower traditionally used in the United States are the militia, short-term, yeah. literally the, the minutemen, the citizens in arms for a day or a week or couple weeks within their county borders. Uh, they're not long-term volunteers. You write about militia being raised out west, and I was fascinated to read about the militia. The, the Army did not want any local militia out west, no. uh, I gather. <laughs> no. Um, they, they, um, they did not like them because they were excessively violent, um, completely mm-hmm. uncontrollable, um, and often in almost every case, completely overreacted to the situation. Uh, mm-hmm. But the militia's argument back to the army and to the federal government is you didn't send enough soldiers to keep us safe. Um, so we had to raise a militia for our own protection. That's our right as citizens. Um, we have the right to do that. Um, even though Sherman and Sheridan uh, constantly writing letters to these territorial governors saying, just be sensible, just just make good choices. Um, you also have the fact that these territorial governors know that if they raise a militia, they can send the bill to the federal government. And it's a nice way to get a little influx into their territorial treasuries, uh, which are you know quite paltry uh, in this period. So the the lack of federal troops in the West uh, shows up in, in Red Cloud's war. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Fetterman fight, the wagon box fight. The, uh, it is, I recall... I don't know, from uh, reading in Commager or somewhere decades ago, this was the one uh, conflict between the indigenous uh, people of the Plains and the Euro-Americans moving westward that ended with the frontier moving back to the east, mm-hmm. uh, that, that the, the Indians win this war. Uh, th- that suggests there really are not enough federal soldiers out there to to do what the country wants them to do. Precisely. And and that, um, you know, also that, that indigenous people are very aware of that fact um, mm-hmm. and, and take advantage of it um, strategically, tactically. Um, and they get great concessions. The Treaty of Fort Laramie in 1868, the United States agrees to abandon federal installations all, all along the Bozeman Trail, which is the route to Montana across Wyoming. Um, I've never seen another treaty where the United States gives up uh, willingly mm-hmm. by agreement it's federal military installations usually the united states motto is and, and i live in texas kind of come and take it uh, <laughs> uh, now you mentioned custer a couple times and and uh in your conclusion you you have that great illustration the uh, uh the bush uh, brewery mm-hmm. painting of, of the last stand that appeared in moons around the country uh, you suggested that custer's defeat actually brings to a halt the decline of the regular army that at, at this point the modern lionization of the regular army begins mm-hmm. uh, uh, that from being hated by the republicans 
and, and an American tradition back to the revolution, suspicion of the standing army. Uh, in today's world, we say thank you for your service to any military person we see. They're highly regarded. Uh, they're not highly regarded. But Custer is the turning point of that? I think the the sort of Custer myth is the turning point. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, and also the fact that the 1870s, in large part, um, represent the close of the country's Indian Wars. And for the Army, mm-hmm. um, there's still sort of some some uh, conflict with the Apaches that will go on in the 1880s. And, of course, um, Wounded Knee is the kind of last gasp of this violence between federal soldiers and Native peoples. Um, but for the most part, the Indian Wars, which had defined the Army's existence, the, the we had had um, we had had a regular Army, uh, but they were mainly an Indian. Indian fighting army, things like the Mexican War and the Civil War, are really aberrations in a much <laughs> longer kind of can- or portrait of U.S. military activity that that really emphasizes Indian warfare. And so, um, the Custer defeat kind of puts a pin in that um, in some ways. And the army has to kind of start looking in on itself. This is when you get things like the Cavalry School at Fort Leavenworth established. The army has to start to look for new things to occupy its time, and so it it turns inward for a while. Uh, which is why it's quite ill-prepared for the outbreak of, of war with Spain um, in 1900. It had sort of spent the, the 20 years prior to that um, kind of not paying attention to anybody, and, and the government had been content to leave it alone. It didn't really have much of a purpose or a job. But at the same time, uh, this period of what Frederick Jackson Turner, of course, called the closing of the frontier, um, mm-hmm. you have uh, figures like Buffalo Bill Cody, um, who are basically grafting the Custer myth and the idea of uh, cowboys and Indians or soldiers and Indians onto kind of a national story of expansionism and manifest destiny, and and soldiers become heroes. And, and I think that only accelerates when uh, someone like John Ford puts emotion picture camera on John mm-hmm. Wayne and Henry Fonda, uh, you know, in, in, you know, um, mm-hmm. one of their, their movies. So, so I think a lot of people would be surprised to know, uh, that if you'd asked a soldier who was serving on the frontier in 1870, do you think you're going to become one of the heroes of, of kind of the, the dominant narrative of us military history, they would say, what are you talking about? Um, but I think <laughs> there's that turning point, uh, in, in, in about 1876, because of course, one of the really fascinating things about Custer, um, you know, that, that fight at Greasy Grass with a little bighorn takes place within weeks of the, the U.S. centennial. Um, mm-hmm. At this kind of moment where America is, is celebrating its birth and its first hundred years, you have this, this really great ebb in its military history. It, it is a remarkable coincidence there. Mm-hmm. Well, th- that is one of the many really interesting stories uh, throughout this book, which is called The Army Under Fire, The Politics of Anti-Militarism in the Civil War Era. It's written by our guest tonight, Cecily and Zander. Cecily, it's been a pleasure talking with you, and congratulations on the publication. Thank you so much. I had a great time. I appreciate the offer to, to chat tonight. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.